it's really easy to get obsessed with a thing you're doing and just keep on ratcheting up the output and telling yourself that the output will make you happy. But what I've found from doing things that take a long time to achieve, like once you start measuring your efforts in like hundreds of hours, like what I have to do when I'm writing a book or training for a marathon, you realize that it's not worth getting into the process unless you enjoy the process itself. Welcome to the Zero Quit Podcast, where I bring you candid conversations with elite athletes, entrepreneurs, specialists, and other creatives. I'm your host, Brock Covington, and through these dialogues, you will hear powerful stories and practical advice that will help you live a more active and intentional life. If you enjoy the show, be sure to subscribe and share it with a friend. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Zero Quit Podcast. Today, I have on Dustin Radazel. He is an author, recovered addict, leukemia survivor, and perhaps most importantly, a loving father and husband. After recovering from er, from cancer treatment, he began his running journey while concurrently working towards sobriety. Since then, he's ran three marathons, transformed his life, and recently published his latest book, Looks Like We're Running, an Amateur's Companion to Becoming a Marathoner. How are you doing, sir? I am good, man. That is a succinct biography well done did it hit all the points <laughs> you got it you got it yeah i'm uh, i'm shooting for marathon number four this year i i have i have felt frustrated with my inability to finish a marathon you know how when you get to the end of a race and like those last few miles you feel like you're strong or you feel like you are just limping i have yeah. had to even though i've gotten better every marathon i've run I have limped it, and uh, my last marathon, I was going for a sub-four hour. I ran four hours and 36 seconds, and for a while, Mm. I told myself, close enough, and then coming around Mm. this year, I was like, nah, nah, I'm just not going to be happy. (laughs) Well, I've only ran one marathon, and similar to you, I kind of limped my way on the back half of it because I had a really strong start. This was back... November 2021, I believe, in Richmond Marathon, and uh, ran it the first 14 miles. Was actually doing pretty good. I was on pace basically for a sub four, right around four. Uh, but then I have this minor heart condition. I don't really bring it up because it's not formally diagnosed, but I have all the the box that it checks. Is it's called a Wolf Parkinson's White Syndrome. It's like an extra nerve that uh, it's not super life threatening or anything serious. But what happens is randomly uh you get like an extra uh your heart sends an extra signal or nerve to your heart it kicks it up like a, to a high heart rate so you'll be breathing the same as let's say you were at like 130 140 beats per minute but now your heart rate says 180 190 um and i at the time i hadn't had as much experience with it i had felt it before sometimes it'll happen if i uh you know, swallow my spit a certain way and skip a breath and it kind of triggers it. So it's usually something that like, I guess, frightens me or startles me is a better word to say. Um, but to make a long story short, that drained me a lot, having my heart rate so high and not knowing how to get it down at the time. Spent the rest of the other marathon with uh, extreme fatigue and also my hamstring started to, you know, kill me after 20 miles as most people do. And uh, ended up, I think it was like a 447 or something marathon. But, you know, they say if if you're too slow for marathons, you run ultra marathons. So that's what I've done. <laughs> I like the pivot. I like the pivot. I, yeah. I can't decide if I'm running too far or or too <laughs> short because it's like I'm not nailing it, you know? But yeah, I, I'll tell you what I like about marathons. And this is part of the reason I wanted to write the book is... 
for me, I got into running marathons as like a way to strengthen my mind. It was, uh, I was dealing with addiction issues and to me running a marathon, I, I hadn't really even the foggiest about ultra marathons at the time. I learned very mm-hmm. quickly, like, Hey, 26.2 miles, not that far to some people. It's but, a to up, me, yeah. <laughs> but to me, a marathon was like the ultimate distance. And I was like, well, if I could just do this. And so, uh, you know, it had the big branding on it and I got into it and I have found it to almost be a perfect distance to for what my life is. You mentioned the the infrastructure of my life, which, you know, um, I'm a dad. I work a full-time corporate job at Cisco. I mm-hmm. try to pour a lot of my free time into writing because that's what I love. And so it's a very full life. And running a marathon, it takes big chunks out of your week when you get into the high mileage weeks. Oh yeah, and and so I find it to be like just the right distance to to really pour all of myself into without detracting too much from the other arenas. Mm. And yeah. so part of the reason I wanted to write that book is I found that a lot of people are in need of a hard thing to build into their life, something that lets them know that they are capable of doing a thing that they set out to do if they can just dedicate themselves to it. And mm. I can't say I haven't been tempted by ultras because like, has, has anybody who's ever run a marathon not thought like, well, why not just a little further? Yeah. But when I try to scale it against the rest of the weight of life, it's like, this is, this is the right thing. And I could probably get as much physical, as much physical reward out of just sticking to like half marathons or perfecting a 10k distance. Shoot, I would actually, you know what? I would argue I would get more physical reward. You yeah, know, as far as like the aesthetics and, you know, if I'm trying to like ramp up my VO2 max and just balance my fitness appropriately. But I, I really love setting. What do they say? desire is a contract with yourself to be unhappy until you get what you want. And I've, I set this four hour thing out there forever ago. And it's just like, I got to knock it out. And already, uh, you know, I'm planning on running Indianapolis marathon in November. And already I'm telling my wife, it's like, yeah, probably once I get under four hours, I I'll be done with it. Even though I, I kind of know that's probably a lie. But. Well, so I want to stick on that for a moment because you kind of mentioned that at the beginning uh, part of your journey, you had a very specific goal. Like the marathon sounds like a sweet number, a sweet thing to tell people, you know, slap the bumper sticker on the, the back of the car. Uh, but I find that a lot of people, especially lately, and I think it's amongst people that you and I follow even, might fall into the trap of getting too fixated on the objective goal or like the end result. So I see a lot of people these days picking that sub three hour goal, right? And that starts to become almost their entire why of like running to the point where once they finish, they're in this limbo state where they don't really enjoy it too much or they they don't really know what to do with it. And I also wonder, and this goes beyond running, but like how many people would be running or lifting if there wasn't social media or at least doing mm. it in the same way. 
Um, so how do you approach setting objective goals that give you clear metrics to look at and a clear direction, but also appreciating and putting more of an emphasis perhaps on all the subjective and uh, qualitative benefits that you get that I'm sure you experience over the running journey that maybe you uh, appreciate more about yourself than, oh, look at the medals I earned. Yeah, this is an excellent question. And I really think it strikes to the heart of why we do anything. And, you know, I, I'm reading an excellent novel right now called Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zavin. Hope I'm pronouncing that okay. correctly. Uh, and there's two characters that contrast each other. And one is like obsessed with achievement and being great. And the other is just like floating through life and forming great connections and isn't really sure if he's the master of his fate or if he just kind of floated along to what was easiest. And mm -hmm. the thing that makes it a great novel is neither one is held up as like the paragon of what you should be. They complement each other very nicely. And they're held up against some classical literature of like Achilles in the Iliad being like, you know, basically a demigod, and Hector, mm -hmm. who is just a man, and his big title is a tamer of horses, an honest profession that just lets you know you don't have to be a hero to live a meaningful life. Mm -hmm. And I kind of battle with those two things in any arena that I'm trying to achieve in, which is it's really easy to get obsessed with a thing you're doing and just keep on ratcheting up the output and telling yourself that the output will make you happy. But what I've found from doing things that take a long time to achieve, like once you start measuring your efforts in like hundreds of, hundreds of hours, like what I have to do when I'm writing a book or training for a marathon, you realize that it's not worth getting into the process unless you enjoy the process itself because the mm -hmm. achievement is, is so fleeting and oftentimes you're just comparing it to an abstract ranking of where everybody mm -hmm. else who does the thing is anyways. So the way I have chosen to balance it, um, when I'm not sure when this, when this paradigm came to me, but I have for a long time now, probably ever since going through rehab, uh, for alcohol addiction, I've looked at life in kind of three arenas, which is the physical, the intellectual, and the spiritual. And I bucket aspects of my life into those things because I think you need, you know, it's like a three-legged stool to stand up, right? Yeah. I think you need all three of those things to feel satisfied. And so I try to put at the beginning of years, and I use a year because I, I like the cyclical nature of time, weeks to months to, to yeah. years. And that repetition helps me kind of, you know, stay focused on what I'm doing. So at the beginning of years, I'll set a couple things as goals in all those arenas. So, uh, for example, this year, it's the sub four hour marathon and get 15% stronger. And I'll set some baseline metrics on what those lifts are and those exercises that I'm using to account for strength. And then in the, uh, in the intellectual field, I almost always put it into writing. Um, yeah. 
you know, sometimes I'll throw a career thing in there, but honestly, career is it kind of comes you to me quantify, easily at this point. How do you quantify improvement in your writing? Mm-hmm. Because obviously not every year you have a book. Yeah, I don't try to quantify improvement because to a point you made, it's incredibly subjective. What mm-hmm. I what I know for myself is that writing is a thing that edifies me and enriches me. And like when I do it, I feel more in touch with life than almost any other activity. Uh, I've, mm-hmm. Like I've told many people, like if I die at the keyboard old age, like my wife finds me slumped over in the middle of whatever I was writing, I would, I would love that ending for my life. And, and so I don't need to quantify improvement there. I think that's something you can feel. And really, because it's an art, your peace of mind is the, the matter of measurement standard of value. Right. Yeah. And so the thing I have to do is make sure that I'm doing it that it does not get lost. So I've done, mm. I've done different things for that. In the past, I've done, uh, I've done daily word count. I've done daily time. And I'll use like sticky notes on my bathroom mirror at night to make sure like I've recorded it. Um, but now that it's been part of the practice for a while, to a, a point I made earlier, I don't need to measure in such small increments to ensure the activity any longer. So, like, this year, my goal is finish the first draft of this new book. I know what the book is, I have it in mind, and I just need to work doggedly until it gets finished. And mm-hmm. I'll, find the, I'll find the time to do that. I have my regular writing routine. And if I don't hit it, I'll understand why, and that's fine. It's for me. I'm, I'm good at that goal now. But I'll also know if I fall short. Um, but like anything, if I'm sure you've experienced this in forms of exercise or maybe in starting your own business, there were things that needed tighter metrics early on in order to ensure that the activity was occurring. And then once you become good at it, it's, you don't need to engineer at such a granular level anymore. You're, you're working from a higher perspective. And so I don't need to force the, okay, what was my word count today like I used to? Mm-hmm. And then uh, the final thing that I just always make sure is the, the spiritual portion. And I consider that uh, charitable donations, charity work. So I have a fundraiser um, around uh, blood cancers that I work on every year. And then uh, my r- friends and family time. So this mm-hmm. year I set up like a Friday men's group. And we're digging into a lot of this conversation, like gold setting for everybody, breaking out like, how are yeah. we doing financially, increasing our net worth, our fitness goals, et cetera. And then I set a certain number of like one-on-one dates for uh, my wife with my kids. And I'll just track those as the year goes along to make sure that I am setting aside time for them. And then I guess doing all that, uh, there's not a lot of focus on on the achievement is there it's like well i'll finish this book how good will it be i'll run this marathon there's as you know when you run a race and you put all your eggs in this one basket like hey i'm running one marathon this year Mm -hmm. some things could go wrong but the point of the goal is to ensure that the activity leading up to the goal occurs 
And if I'm working yeah. towards all three of those all the time, then I have balance in my physical health, my intellectual pursuits, and my relational stability. And those three things combined for me have created, I mean, the most peace of mind I've ever had in my life. Could it be better? Probably. But it's mm -hmm. a system that I find I refine a little bit every year, and it has made me really enjoy my efforts. So rambling answer, but I hope that kind of circles <laughs> the idea. Yeah, no, I, I think it does. I think to reduce it down, it, it comes to uh, just making sure that, you know, you're constantly uh, in activity as a person. You're constantly striving towards something, willing towards something, and, and whether you meet it, by, meet it by a certain deadline or whether uh, whatever the specific goal is, um, I think as long as you're working towards something, you can still kind of find value in that fulfill or fulfillment uh, resides in just the activity of doing it. Uh, but and, and there's a ton of questions I want to ask you about the writing thing, but before we go down that rabbit hole, We'll stick on the, the uh, running side of things uh, and squeeze all out of that lemon. I want to read you off a quote that I heard you say on, I think it was Jeremy's podcast, and see if you can expand further upon it. You said that running helps you make sense of your experiences. So what do you think, uh, or, or how could you expand upon that? Yeah, I think the there's probably one primary thing that it does, and then probably a secondary thing at the same time. The The primary thing that running does to help you understand your experiences is it teaches you how to focus on incremental, uh, incremental effort over time and incremental improvement over time. And I think you hear this a lot from runners, but the big realization for a lot of people who get into distance running is that you actually get better by running slower. And mm -hmm. once you understand like, okay, I just need to log more time at a moderate pace instead of killing myself for this thing, you can see that flow through all your experiences. Like if I just am present and I do the thing without too much rush, I will see massive benefits over time. And we know this in a lot of ways if we'll stop to reflect on it. Like if you think about your best friend's that you've ever made in life, it's not because like every moment you spent together, you were just like hammering away at friendship. It is just like a slow evolution of time and over there, there grows an ease between you. Like what mm -hmm. felt awkward at first, like I really have to force this conversation. Like, I mean, we're, we're experiencing a version of it now, right? This is the first time you and I have ever talked. And so we're pouring yeah. a lot of focus into the conversation. But if this was our 200th conversation, it would be easy. I'd be asking you about things I know about your life now. You'd be doing the same. There would be, mm -hmm. there would be so little effort required in order to have a deep, meaningful interaction. And so I think that because running is such a, such a solidary, solitary and unceasing event. You were just doing the same thing without break for 45 to 90 minutes mm -hmm. that it gives you this, this mirror to what it is to have a relationship with almost any activity, which is I am just doing the thing for a long time. 
And yeah. almost all of life's events, time is is the great differentiator. It it defines attention, it defines understanding. Like your mind cannot help but decode the things that it pays attention to. And so I think that's the primary thing, which is like which is silly and obvious, which is like, hey, if you the thing that you do the most is the thing you will do the best. And yet, yeah. like a lot of obvious wisdom, all the cliches that seem like whatever, I know that already, once you actually experience the cliche, it becomes profound and deeply personal. And so mm. running for me was the first thing that I set like, this is a super difficult goal. I don't know if I can do it. And I am just going to, re I'm just going to stick with it and see how it goes. And it was amazing to me how it just like molded to my experience. And then the more the minor secondary thing around that is we, we have an idea about what is difficult and and the truth is, it's it's not difficult, right? Like, this is another cliche. It's, uh, it's simple, but it's not easy type of idea. Mm -hmm. and, and I don't know. The thing is, like, it, it kind of is easy. You just, you just do the thing. And That's what I've always said about, uh, like, discipline. I think people, and I think it helps some people in the beginning stages, but... It's become so glorified now, the discipline of just showing up to work out or, or, or running or doing an ice bath, when it's like in reality, you're just getting in a tub for a few minutes or you're just shuffling your feet for a few minutes, right? It is very simple, but then obviously on the grand scheme of things, you look at the complexity of it, it obviously is difficult at the same time. Me and my little brother were having a discussion around this over Christmas break. I went and worked out with him and like we're talking about, you know, what are we trying to achieve next year? And you know, he's he's looking at some things through a willpower perspective and, you know, very quickly he adapted his mindset. So I don't want to act like he didn't have a good handle on this. But mm -hmm. my whole point was like willpower is such bullshit. It's just like is in the in the power rankings of like good character traits. I put willpower near the very bottom. It's good for like <laughs> five minutes tops. And yeah. what is what is much better, like the. To me, the indicator of real willpower is somebody who has built a system to ensure that a an activity will recur habitually. That's willpower. It's like the willpower to set the alarm versus the willpower to say, no, I'll get up. I'll do it. I'll want to do it tomorrow. Or like the willpower, it's like an atomic habits type thing. The willpower to like set the shoes and the outfit out and set the alarm mm -hmm. for the next morning and do all the things so like set set the the lights to automatically come on in your room to do everything to ensure that it occur, that the activity occurs that's willpower it's not just like oh i'm 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 so hard-nosed mm. and what happens to people who have done the thing 100 days in a row it's like for me with uh with alcoholism did it take willpower like to in re to go to rehab and after rehab to like keep grinding against the you know the nagging of the addiction in my mind yes 
initially, but now there is virtually no willpower exerted whatsoever. So mm-hmm. I just think that that discipline and willpower, to your point, it's I don't want to undermine it because people who are starting out, they need to feel that that giddy up, right? So like the I initially wrote my book and I had I don't know, I had like a whole explanation of why me and my wife were running a marathon together and why this particular marathon and the first chapter was like a story. And I got done with the book and I was just like, you know, it's not right. So I that origin story, which I, I call week zero, I moved that to chapter two. And I made chapter one week one, which is just like getting out the door, which is in fact the title of the chapter, Get Out the Door. Because <laughs> in the beginning, yes, you need that motivation. And that's why I like like New Year's, January 1st, like I feel like it's become somewhat in vogue to be like, hey, you know what's what's a really good New Year's resolution? Starting in December. It's like, well, it's yeah. all BS. Like you have to you have to pick a date to start. And so use that motivation to get rolling, but more than anything else, use that motivation to ensure you have a system of repetition. And then you won't need motivation anymore. It'll just occur. So I didn't mean to talk about this so long, but to the point, <laughs> no, <laughs> it's, it's all right. It's not the the thing that running repetitively teaches you is that it is easy. It is easy, and all this resistance you feel is a little bit of a a little bit of a charade, and you don't need yeah. to worry about changing your mind or convincing yourself that you can run or that you love it. You just have to do it enough times, and this is something I really do believe. We we kind of preach to kids and even even to ourselves a little bit, right? Like your parents are giving you job advice when you're like getting towards college. Oh, well, what do you love to do? You should do what you love. And it's like, yeah. well, kind of, but you know what you end up loving? You end up loving what you get good at. And so yeah. if there are things that you recognize that this will make me be- a better person, just do it and you will come to love it because just like running has taught me so much about life's experiences, you could pick another thing. I'm sure when you started getting into bodybuilding as a teenager, I'm sure that it unveiled a lot of other things about life that you're like, oh, this is like that and this is like this. Yeah, Absolutely. If you get really into a topic, it will it will teach you about other things in the process. Uh, there's so many points I'll, I'll throw out there that come to my mind. So one, I love the point about willpower, which I'll get to in a moment. Um, but two, yeah, I mean, I think running really recenters us in a way that it, it kind of resets our baseline or acceptability of monotony and so we kind of get used to doing the things that we don't love or don't like and and can kind of withstand that a lot longer um and the other thing that you kind of hit on too about the happiness thing is and it ties to the rationality too is enabling more rationality than sensibility with how your goals are so you won't 
sensibly, emotionally feel like getting up from that warm bed, but the rationality should kick in and say, this is something important to me. This is more worthwhile than sitting in this bed a, a day I'm not going to remember versus the, the effects, the results of, you know, continual work ethic are going to show up and be more valuable to me. So I think it's, it's just enacting more reason um, in, in our decision making. But to, to get back to the willpower point, unless you have something good to say, go for well, it. Well, I just think I've, something I've rolled around my head for years now, it's the chicken or the egg is like, what comes mm-hmm. first, like my feelings or my actions? And there's really no mm-hmm. way for me to tell. And it's like, when I do things that I know are good for me, I feel good. And when I feel bad, I feel resistance to doing the things that are good for me. And I think there's a fine line to walk with like being gracious to yourself and, you know, not burning yourself out on things. But yeah, it it just what you said there about the rationality. I I wasted too much time several years ago trying to solve that problem. I was like, I don't care. I am going to care less about how I feel. I'm going to focus on doing the things I said I would do and whatever Mm -hmm. feelings occur to me, I'm going to let them in and just let myself feel them and that's you know that's part of recovery training is like not fighting your feelings or not trying to escape your feelings but yeah i i as much as i said i've retired that thought it still it still creeps up on me once in a while and i will feel myself like telling myself no (laughs) like ah you know what take today off and be like you told yourself you wouldn't be like this anymore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it's it's not so black and white, too. I mean, obviously, it's like a balance. It, to, to me, especially with the philosophy I've read that kind of looks at that, you know, like, can we really completely separate rationality from our emotions when in reality we're a lot of times justifying or trying to understand our acts after or our actions after the fact and rationalizing what we acted out emotionally. Uh, but how I perceive it and think of it is just knowing what tool to use out of the toolbox, mm. depending on the situation, the circumstance. So know when to act emotionally. You know, you don't need to be with your wife and act rationally and be so frugal and stingy about, let's say, money. You might want to be a little bit more uh, frivolous with spending and enjoy time and, and because love isn't always a rational emotion, too. Mm. Um, but to get back to, to uh, the running side of things. I believe on that same uh, podcast with our good friend Jeremy, uh, you, you mentioned a Murakami quote that uh, was something along the lines of mentioning that suffering is optional. Mm-hmm. Um, with that idea of suffering and how we talked a little bit about how people uh, glorify the suffering of uh, physical activity and stoicism has this kind of pop culture twist and rise to it nowadays. Uh, I want to read a quote from one of my favorite writers, Pessoa, because uh, in the back of uh, one of his books, he had this nice section uh that pose three different options to uh, withstanding or experiencing suffering. Uh, One was analyzing the pain uh, to the point of focusing on it so much that you overcome it. The second was creating this kind of idealized figure of yourself that can withstand it. So I think of like David Goggins talking about when he goes Goggins mode or whatever it is, and he becomes this unstoppable force, right? And then the third one is actually allowing yourself to feel the pain so much that it becomes pleasurable. 
But let me read off this uh, this one quote in regard to the analyzing pain, and I'd love to hear your thoughts. So he says, quote, This is an easier technique than it seems, at least for superior souls, to analyze pain and to get in the habit of submitting all pains to analysis until we do it automatically by instinct will endow every pain imaginable with the pleasure of analyzing it. Once our ability and instinct to analyze grow large enough, our practice of it will absorb everything, and there will be nothing left of pain but an indefinite substance for analysis. What are your thoughts? Man, well, my first thought is... Put you on the spot. (laughs) No, no. My first thought is something I find myself thinking a lot, which is, uh, particularly when it comes to stoicism, which is like, they really figured everything out thousands of years ago, didn't they? It's like, there's nothing new. That's what I feel like the more I read. Um, Yeah, but the problem is we we still haven't (laughs) learned to to adopt it or adapt it, uh, you know, as, as... because obviously they're still we're still reading it today. We haven't fully solved it out yet. Well, my second thought is that, and this is the reason I look at things through a physical, intellectual, spiritual, you know, kind of trifold paradigm, if that's the right mm-hmm. phrase for this, is the way he talked about categorizing the pain, which is like an analytical category, which is an intellectual perspective primarily, a... Mm-hmm a the what was the second one it was a uh so there's analyzing the pain which i i feel like i resonate most with that where i try and really focus on the experience feel it to its fullest extent allow it to be very palpable uh and and that way that i i kind of deaden the pain a little bit by just appreciating the moment the second one is ide- having that kind of idealized figure idealized, or secondary it. persona and then the third is finding pleasure from the pain almost like a masochistic way yeah so it's like an analytical approach the idealized persona which i feel like is an emotional effort to overcome the pain and then the you know it's with me all the time which is the physical experience you can't get away from your body and mm-hmm. so i i find that things fall into these categories fairly often and this is also a reason why, to kind of reverse engineer this thing, the problem of pain, so I, I grew up in a Christian home, and the problem of pain is very often like cited as the problem with a, uh, you know, a, a benevolent creator. Like, why would mm-hmm. an earth be created that is filled with pain? And the problem of pain is often the problem of your life. Like, it's what starts, it triggers addictions, like through well, I want to escape or, you know, it, it, I mean, everybody understands the problem of pain, but it's like, I'm, I hate my job. I come home exhausted. There's a chain reaction. I take it out on my wife and my kids. And now like, I dislike myself as a dad. Like the problem of pain is, is not just a physical one, but the reason I, there were a lot of things I wanted to write. The reason I wrote looks like we're running is I think of my writing is a continuum that will occur throughout my life that hopefully teaches not only me how to live better, but I'd like to lay out something that my children could look at and understand, not just me, but a way to navigate the world. And Mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be running, but I think having a healthy relationship with a difficult physical exercise is about the quickest feedback loop you can create for the problem of pain. And Mm -hmm. so if you do something every single day to get into that pain, it 
starts to let you understand how you process it. You know, the part of the reason I like a marathon distance or just a longer distance in general is there's the physical challenge, which is great for the body, but I like that in the later stages of long distance running, you are confronted with this is going to last, this thing that I'm disliking is going to last potentially for an hour. And I feel like you go through all the stages that the philosopher just mentioned there. Uh, I'll, I say often that a marathon is like a three-part race. The first third of it is a physical challenge. The second third of it is a physical and a mental challenge. And the final third of it is a physical, mental, and emotional challenge. Like at that point, you are all in. And so Mm -hmm. you kind of go through all those phases in running. And I guess to the point you made earlier, that's kind of what I mean about like processing your pain in anything that you do. And I do think that the eventual lesson is you can't escape it. And that the fastest way to get past it is to go through it or to embrace it. Mm -hmm. You know, the, to realize that the thing that is very difficult that you are pushing against is also the thing that is making you strong. So no reason to avoid it. This is, just like every emotion in life, this pain is a friend if you can take the time to understand it and give it what it needs. And yeah. so I, I like having a practice of that. And running was an easy one for me, but I mean, anybody who has a rigorous training can see how that, how that parallels other things that you have to wrestle with in life. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people talk about that involuntary suffering, and I I think of it more so from the idea of when you manufacture some artificial adversity for yourself or pain, it allows you to analyze yourself. It, it puts you in an environment where you can really think through. Um, it can be edifying. Uh, and rather than looking at it as what it can do for my willpower, I look at, look at it as what it can do for my mind and my emotional intelligence when I'm in those situations in the future that are outside of my control. Uh, but to pivot a little bit, I feel like, uh, I, <laughs> I feel like it's, it's when something awful has happened to somebody, but it ends up being a part of their story identity. I feel weird, like being like, let's talk about cancer, but <laughs> I want to talk about leukemia, your battle with that. So I, I feel like the only question that makes sense as an introduction is what led to your diagnosis in the first place? Yeah, uh, and don't feel bad about asking. I mean, it's it's right there on the it's on the placard, basically. Yeah. The, uh, the thing that led to my diagnosis was I felt like I came down with a really bad fever, and um, I had a little ingrown hair on my leg that I picked off, and I wouldn't have even thought about it. It had just been like scratching off an ingrown hair. Probably done it hundreds of times before, and yet as the fever got worse, that spot where the ingrown hair was, it started looking like a snake bite, then like it grew to looking like something like a truck had run over my leg, like it was getting really gnarly, and Mm -hmm. so within the course of, it, 
it took less than 36 hours for me to think I was completely healthy to being diagnosed with cancer. So this all happened really fast. But when I felt like I had a fever, I went to bed. I was going to sleep this thing off. And when I woke up, like, it was obviously bad. It wasn't just a fever. The fever wouldn't break, but, like, it was incredibly painful, like a searing burning in my legs mm. when I tried to move them. Um, so my now wife, fiance at the time, rushed me to an urgent care. The urgent care looked at me for like all of two minutes and sent me to the ER. ER had me in there doing tests for six hours. Um, and by the time they sent me to uh, UNC Hospital in Chapel Hill, uh, I was so hopped up on drugs that I, it, I mean, it's it's kind of a blur to me now. Um, I spent the next seven days in the ICU and and I like I remember friends and family and like my boss and just various people coming through but I don't remember any of the content of the conversation not really mm-hmm. um the the thing that is interesting about it from a timing perspective is I was diagnosed it's called acute promyelocytic leukemia so basically it's very fast acting. What it does is none of the white blood cells, your body is no longer producing white blood cells that work. So if you catch any kind of disease, that disease will kill you because you have virtually no auto, no immune system. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that infection in my leg was basically spiking everything. Like my whole body was trying to fight that unsuccessfully. And I was diagnosed six days before me and my wife were supposed to get married. So we had a bunch of family coming in town anyways. And so like a <laughs> bunch of people just like kept it and like came by and saw me and all that was awesome. But what was interesting is like our first big step was we got to get out of the ICU. Like let's get stable enough that I can get moved. Like it, it is going to be a big celebration to go to the cancer ward. And <laughs> just by dumb luck. So we were supposed to walk down the aisle at, three o'clock on that Saturday, December 3rd, if memory serves me. And, uh, and what actually ends up happening is I am being rolled in a wheelchair to the cancer ward after my time in the ICU at like three fifteen on Saturday. And so me and my <laughs> fiance, instead of walking down the aisle, it's like, Hey, we are out of the worst of it. And we are walking towards the cancer ward. I think we're going to be all right. And I joke with everybody like, hey, premarital counseling's great, but if you really want to make sure you're marrying someone <laughs> solid, get some premarital cancer. That that answers yeah, the question. That'll do it. Yeah. <laughs> gotcha. Well, I, I know you're a big, uh, not just writer, but reader as well. What kind of books or mental frameworks helped you through your treatment journey? Man. You know, that's interesting. It's funny because I, I I tell the story so often looking back that it is difficult to remember how I felt in the moment yeah. and what I was. So what's I funny. I you didn't do any writing while you were there? Well, no, I did. So I actually have a book I wrote before Looks Like We're Running. It's called Cheeto Dust uh, yeah. and Other Blood on Millennial Hands. And 
you know, it's okay. <laughs> I don't, I don't brag about it, but I broke most of that, almost all of it while I was going through chemo. I just had like a ton of free time on my hands and it had been the project I was working on before I got diagnosed. And it's just kind of a broad spectrum look at the millennial generation, which at the time I felt like as a millennial, I felt like we were really misunderstood and we were catching a lot of shit we didn't deserve. And so mm-hmm. I was trying to like unravel that for myself. And uh, it's funny because now it's a topic that I feel like is mostly kind of meaningless. I've taken on a lot more belief about the individual and care a lot less about like broad spectrum opinions. Yeah. But uh, but the right, it did help me to have something to do. And I do think that you know, you talk about framework similar to the willpower or the like, hey, put your mind in a certain perspective and that's what will get you through this moment. I think what usually gets you through hard times is having something to do, having a routine. And even if it's something that you feel like it's it's even a little bit made up, like you you decide it. And you set yourself to the task. So, you know, part of the reason I, I mean, it's not, it's a, it's a huge part. It's like 90% of the part that I decided to run my very first marathon was I had just gotten out of rehab and I needed something to absorb me. And so Mm -hmm. I set this really difficult thing. And so when I'm sitting in, I, I spent the, the first 33 days in the hospital before I got into regular chemo. I spent uh, playing video games, mostly. It was like my last hurrah with video games. <laughs> like, I haven't played again. But I just played a lot of video games and didn't think about it. And then when I, when I got into chemo, uh, I was basically either writing or drinking. And... You know, that's probably why I, I think so much about telling the story in reverse is I think when at the time I was still running away from it mostly. And it's an interesting thing when you have cancer because like nobody nobody's going to look down on it as a weakness. You know, when you have cancer, everybody rallies around you. It is, it is the most support and love you will ever feel. And that's awesome because if you're if you're a person who's in the situation like I was, where I, my my self esteem never really struggled. I've always liked myself, but mm-hmm. I was not proud of who I was. I wouldn't have pointed to myself as like someone to emulate. I think that's something that's changed a lot since having children and redirecting my life, but. But it's awesome to have all those people supporting you through a tough time because you need a belief that what you're doing is worth it. And so I'm writing that book, and I'm still uh, probably using the second iteration of how you deal with pain, creating this mythical figure in my head to deal with it, and, and clinging to this idea that, like, oh, I can write something good. And in hindsight, like, I don't think that book is great. It's not bad. You'll find some good stuff in there, but I'll always have a soft spot for it because it it really helped me get through that time to have the work to do and a task to accomplish and feel like 
the best of my life was in front of me instead of worrying about all the regrets and the pain as I went through this potentially uh, life-threatening event that ended up being like 10 months. It's a long time to, to wrestle with something. Yeah. Have you ever heard uh, of David Foster Wallace? Oh, love him. Love him? So have you read Infinite Jest? So Infinite Jest is impossible for me. I give up okay. every time. <laughs> but Guy, I think what I'm, is the sticking point? I don't know, man. I I think uh <laughs> I yeah, think how do you love him if you can't read it. Well, I think I've read every essay he's ever every other book all he's ever essays, yeah. yeah, he's ever written. <laughs> and uh and I've I've you know, it's not just the essays. I'm a big fan of the movie uh that was done by uh Jesse Eisenberg and the guy who played Marshall With, uh, from How Jason's, I Met Your Mother. Yeah. Uh blanking on his last Is it Jason? Yeah, whatever it is. I want to yeah. say Sudeikis, but it's not Sudeikis. I, it's, it's not him. It's the, it's another Jason. It's the other Siegel. Jason. Jason Siegel. That's it. That's the one. Uh, yep. Yeah, yeah, there it is. And so, and yeah. I, I watched a ton of, when I was first getting into writing, I watched a ton of interviews, like with him, Jonathan Oh, Branson. yeah, his interviews are phenomenal. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And so, all that to say, like, I'm a fan, and every, like, I've tried <laughs> Infinite Jest three times. I even tried it on audiobook. An audiobook is like, forget about it. That's a dumb oh, way sure to approach it's that book. Is it, is it boring, or does it just feel uh, daunting, like overwhelming? Like I think it was much. daunting. And, uh, no, I haven't attempted it. I haven't attempted it in the last four or five years. I. It's Maybe funny I'll because I feel like it. I'm. Uh, I feel like I'm apologizing for this now. Look. Well, anyway, I'm gonna let, knock let me, it out. Okay, there we go. We'll we'll circle back. But there's a ton of phenomenal uh, discussion. Just because, obviously, you know, as you know, uh, addiction and alcoholism was, you know. Uh, integral part of David Foster Wallace's wife or life, unfortunately. And uh, a lot of his experience bled into the book when his character, Don Gately and the whole recovery house is, is, you know, and the AA meetings and all of that. So what I was going to ask you, although it may be like taboo since the whole point is an uh, anonymity, but did you attend AA and did any of those kinds of cliches or experiences help you through your addiction? A hundred percent. Yeah. I, I was going to say real quickly, um, in the last chapter of the book, I actually quote David Foster Wallace. Oh, beautiful. I'll read it, read it. It says, uh, the horrific struggle to establish a human self results in a self whose humanity is inseparable from that horrific struggle, that our endless and impossible journey towards home is in fact our home. And to me, that was like everything about like the process is the purpose. So, like, get into it and embrace the suffering. He was a beautiful writer, wasn't he? Oh, it was unbelievable. Unbelievable. Yeah. But, uh, no, repeat the repeat the question real quick because I, I didn't Essentially, mean to Essentially, infinite... No, no, no. I just need to, I just need to verify <laughs> I was a fan. <laughs> good, good. Well, usually because people say who, you know? Um, but the, the, the question centered around the idea of, did you attend AA and and deal with a lot of those yeah. trite phrases or or, or yeah. hackneyed sayings that, on the surface level, you know, one day at a time? It's like, well, that simple phrase doesn't solve my or, or lead me immediately to sobriety, but there is a lot of value hidden within it. So, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, my thoughts are mostly that wisdom has to do with your ability to accept it. Um. There's one of the trite 
sayings you'd hear in AA time and time again is take what you can use, leave what you can't. And there's people say it in different ways, but you'd go into these meetings and it was, it was good that somebody gave me that right away. So part of rehab was attending an AA meeting or two every day on top of the actual work we'd do in the clinic. And then part of my, you know, you talk about, you know, how do I set up achievement versus process? One of my first, my first goals out of rehab was a hundred hours of AA or alcohol related group therapy. Cause there's some other groups that aren't AA, but, uh, but something that somebody said early on that made me appreciate all that time because, man, you listen to a lot of people just telling their crazy stories or just explaining, mm-hmm. like, what political issue on TV has them upset this week. <laughs> but part of the thing that's that's great about it, so there's a couple of trite phrases. Is that first one is like, hey, take what, take what works, leave what doesn't. And if you can just focus on that and, like, look for that gold it's okay that most of it is crap because you don't need that much gold to make you rich and the the second trite phrase that i really liked was don't leave 5 minutes before the miracle and it's just like yeah. so one is like setting you up to proactively expect that hey you're not always going to get a lot out of this but just Hang in there. There will be a couple good things. And there always is. There's always like one person that says something. And it's amazing how consistently that you you hear one thing that triggers something great for you. And the other phrase, don't leave five minutes before the miracle, or don't leave before the miracle, make it shorter, is like when you feel that temptation like, oh, it's not happening today, just wait. Just wait a little longer. And I find that that is so similar to what my brain tells me when I'm running a distance and I get tired and I want to stop. Or when I'm writing and I look down and it's like, it's not coming to me today. And it's like, well, the time I set for myself isn't up over yet. Just hang in there. Like just keep turning the idea over. And eventually something triggers. And to the point we talked about earlier, in the beginning of AA, I really had to lean on those phrases because it sucked. It was not. It was not. What's well, awesome. funny because in the book, and and again, this is this is why I think I really enjoyed the book, and why I've asked uh, another addict as well who had overcome a heroin addiction was asking about you know some of the references in this book because I found it to be very riveting and insightful as someone who hasn't struggled with substance abuse, um, and that's what he kind of pointed out, or the characters do, I should say is that you kind of have to go into the meetings and and listen to these cliches and accept them wholeheartedly and just do them anyway. Just just show up to the meeting anyway even if you don't think you're going to get anything from it. Believe the the you know saying even if you think it's it's silly and and it'll end up doing wonders for you. Yeah, there's some truth to that too. Um I think I've always been a pessimist. I mean, even you know, I mentioned growing up in a Christian home, but like I've, that's a complicated relationship even today. Like my ideas on God, I, I am, it is really hard for me to accept something that I have not personally experienced. And I find that to be a great weakness for me. 
my wife is exceptional at hearing good advice and like, I'm just going to follow the good advice and never run into <laughs> any problems. And so you learn I, things the hard way. Oh, every time, every time. And it's yeah. just the worst. <laughs> and, and yeah. AA is one of those things where the longer you do it, the more you realize, to your point, the BS stuff you hear about, like, keep coming back, it works. Yeah. It does. Like, it just does. And th- it's, like, hard for me to accept that this thing – I was saying this to my wife, I don't know, a month ago, which is I went on uh, the Sober Motivation podcast – I don't know, like before Christmas break. And it was the first time I had really spoken purely about the addiction in a public forum. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Brad, Brad McLeod, who does that, that podcast, he does an awesome job with it and has a, has a really solid following, a couple hundred thousand followers. And so I was a little bit nervous about it all, and I was trying to like get my mind right before going on the podcast. And it's like, you you want to think that you have some unique thing to offer this space, but yeah. it it's all been figured out. Like it doesn't matter what level you're at in the addiction process. Like there is there is a free option with plenty of groups and support. There are advanced paid options with one-on-one coaching for you. There are mm-hmm. there are resorts where you can like do nothing but focus on the addiction. Like and all the education is there. And it's it's not a it's not a thing that you overcome by being smart about it. And I think that intelligent you'll see this a lot actually with people who are addicted. Like high intelligence, it might actually increase your likelihood of addiction. I don't know if that's yeah. true or not, but I it think amaz- we saw it with uh, Wallace. It amazes me how many people that you're like, man, how did how did this person get duped, right? Mm-hmm. And it's because you can't think your way around it. In fact, accepting to your point, accepting the simple, uninsightful truth. That there is nothing to do but just like show up every day, stay That's dry. Like we said, it's it's simple, but it's not easy, right? So just and circling back there, <laughs> it, it's it's it, yeah, the, and it's even difficult to talk about because like right now what we're doing, we're articulating this concept, and you want to offer something even now insightful on this idea, but there is no new insight, something guys. New. Yeah, it's, yeah, <laughs> it's been well, figured I, out. So it's, to round it off on, on that, another Wallace, because I, I rarely get somebody who reads him as well. So I would read this other quote that you reminded me of, and I, it's in uh, Infinite Jest as well. He says, quote, everybody is identical in their secret unspoken belief that way deep down, they're different from everyone else. Yeah, but dude. we're not. <laughs> we're not at all. So let's dig into the whole writing piece, uh, if, if that's fine with you, because I'd love to hear just more about that as as someone that... I, I think I enjoyed writing in my youth, but I never really got into it. I was never fascinated with it. And the older I've gotten, the more I've fell in love with reading and literature. Uh, I, I've started to write more and, and same as you. I, I find it to be very rewarding, insightful practice for me. Um, so with all that said, what inspired you to be 
a writer that you are today? You know, have, did you always write? Was there always something in the back of your mind pulling you uh, to get started with it? Yeah, I I wish there was like a, a very clear like origin story. I wrote an essay for yeah. my mom. I don't know. I was homeschooled growing up. I must have been like second grade or something like that. Uh, and I put a lot into it and she gave me a lot of praise. And so I, as a kid, I thought I was good. And, <laughs> and then I got... You still have it? Uh, I bet we do. I'd have to dig it up. I was going to say, do you I, still I probably think it's don't good? want to read it. <laughs> yeah, I probably yeah. don't want to see it. Uh, I just remember, I remember using word perfect or whatever the processor was at the time to, uh, to look up uh, a lot of synonyms. So it's probably just yeah. rife with adjectives, <laughs> which sucks. Nice. But, uh, <laughs> but being homeschooled, I found that when I got into public school, which was eighth grade, that I was ahead of the curve on a lot of things academically. It just, I was behind on mm-hmm. some social things for sure. Uh, and that was its own trial, but but the writing seemed to be an area where like my vocabulary, the articulation of ideas, like I got a lot of positive feedback for that early. Did you grow and up in then, a house full of books and readers? Uh, yeah, for sure. Like my, you know, my older brother was three years older than me, and so I just wanted to read everything he read. My mom mm. comes from a family of 12, and they're all like, mm. you know, read 100 books a year type of kids growing up in this large family. And then that kind of got passed down. So I remember my older brother read the Lord of the Rings series. He must have been 11, so I was 8, so I started reading them then. And, yeah. you know, I think about that now, it, it just, it didn't seem like anything. It just seemed like what we were doing. But now when I look at like seven, eight-year-old kids, like that's a lot of book to bite off at that age. Yeah, I I never, uh, my I think my both my parents read and still read, but my dad would read and still does kind of those like Jack Reacher, uh, Jason Bourne style books, yeah. you know, which, which are fine. Uh, my mom, you know, she's kind of like the inverse, the classic feminine books of uh, like Nicholas Sparks and stuff mm. like that. But neither were big readers. We didn't have any kind of library or definitely not any classical literature in the house. And uh, so I stumbled upon it a lot. Still, fortunately, I'm very young, but still later in my life. And uh, it's it's funny because I bought a dictionary like six months ago, <laughs> uh, which I feel like sounds silly like, to some like people, an old but I'm sure you appreciate it. Like, yeah, like a hardbound Oxford English dictionary. Specifically, I wanted that one. And um and I've just been so fascinated with expanding my vocabulary uh, since I've started really reading uh, religiously. And um, and it's it's crazy, though, how even like dictionary aside, how just reading harder literary works improves your vocabulary, your way of understanding yourself, of speaking to others, speaking, being more articulate. Uh, it's it's a huge deal. And so being able to have that that young as you did, I'm sure that played a big role in your you know literary ability. Well, I'm curious. I didn't want to like pivot, but I've been thinking about this throughout the podcast. I've noticed it's fairly easy to tell when I listen to, you know, interviews with you, the articulation, the vocabulary, and you often cite a a pretty wide selection of books. I'm curious mm-hmm. about like being a 
being that you dropped out of college to start your own business, what did you do as far as saying like, here's what I need to read or here's what I need to get into? Was it a natural curiosity or did you just kind of, did you like follow a certain, did you have like a reading hero that you're like, okay, everything Ryan Holiday (laughs) says? No, I actually, well, side note, I'm not, I'm not a huge, I, I have, contradicting feelings about ryan holiday but i'll get to that later uh (laughs) yeah i i really didn't care for reading at all in school like most kids i'd kind of you know look up test answers before i go there read summary spark notes so i mean read the uh, percy jackson series as a kid but besides that no reading until again until i was like 20 and um which isn't that long ago i'm 23 for reference 24 next month so still young uh but i say that because in tw- when I turned 20, I was working at this gym. Someone had, who was at a student at UVA had left uh, a copy of The Republic by Plato on the desk. And so I picked it up and I was like, oh, like esoteric philosophy. Like, let me you know, take a stab at this. And I started reading it and I was like, this is kind of interesting. And I feel a bit of, you know, pretension by reading it. I feel kind of uh, cool in that way. And uh, but I was like, okay, I can actually kind of understand some of this. It's interesting because it's challenging. And uh, so then I eventually bought my own copy, read it a little bit around the pandemic, early stages, finished the Republic, or I think I might have had like 80 pages left and but generally worked through it, but couldn't tell you much about it because I wasn't studying or reading it as uh, diligently as I as I do today. Fast forward. you know, two years after that, I, I just gone through so many phases of trying to start getting the habit of reading and I just couldn't stick with it. It wasn't really, I think it was a mix of not finding the right books for me that were stimulating and interesting, but also I'm a very habitual person. So if I can tie it in habit stack it and, and something like that, I'll do it. But if I just say, well, let me do it at any time during the day, it, it doesn't work for me. So, so once we moved from Virginia, uh, to Colorado, I was able to dial it into my morning routine. Then it became concrete for me. And so really, it sounds silly, but I've been able to, I feel like, catch up by reading as much as I have. But I've only been an active reader for like a year and a half. Yeah. And I've been able to read like 60 books and like you say, fortunately, a wide variety. Um, but it, it's been quite recent. And before that, it was, you know, like I'm um, looking at shelf over here like the 48 laws of power or um some of these like general self-helpy books uh that i knew just weren't grabbing me in the same way uh but yeah i mean since then my as far as how i choose my books now i worked my way kind of chronologically through the western canon of philosophy so you know i started with aristotle i worked my way up descartes spinoza um got to the empiricist with humor Locke. Um, you know, I, I kind of actually started with Nietzsche, but then, you know, decided to dial back, but worked my way back through Nietzsche, Schopenhauer, Kant, um, Camus, the existentialist and all of that. And then in between there, especially over the past eight months, I've gotten more into actually fiction and literature. So I just finished up, I think one of my favorite novels I've read and quiet flows the dime by, uh, Mikhail Sholokhov. It's a Russian uh, novel in the mid 1900s. Highly recommend it. Um, read a bunch of Dostoevsky, Kafka, uh, some other works as well. Uh, so it's it's kind of just been, I mean, the, again, the cool thing about reading in general is there's an insane amount of books. And specifically, if you have a fascination uh, or a predilection like me for classical literature, 
there's still like an infinite amount, like oh, yeah. you said, like you could pick a Dostoevsky and go through eight or nine books, then hop over to, you know, Jane Austen and go through a bunch or, or whomever there's, you're not going to run out of selection. So, um, it's a long story, but, but hopefully that uh, answers some questions and where my, my mind and history is at. No, it's fascinating. I, what I try to encourage people with today. So I, Shortly after rehab, when I was trying to rebuild my life, I I read like 120 books in a year, and I was like, I don't need to make sense of it. I just need like uh, an influx of of information. So that first year, it was mm-hmm. just like, let's pour it all in. And the thing that's fascinating to your point is like, books are so omnipresent, but it's really like the best possible deal you're gonna find. Like, mm-hmm. I don't. If you get the right book, there's not a better way to spend ten twenty dollars anywhere no like you'll you'll spend 20 bucks on like a an average lunch you know and if Mm -hmm. you get if you land the right book for 20 bucks like it you get to like buy information or buy access to someone's brain from you know hundreds of years ago or, or could be a more contemporary reader and absorb their perspective or experience and take it in and yeah for cheap yeah and it's it's in my experience it's a much better it is a denser handle on whatever idea you're interested in than you're going yeah. to get from like a YouTube video or a. And I was just look, about I to love, say, I love those other things <laughs> oh, too, but it yeah. it doesn't give you that same like. It's kind of like a, a carbs versus protein. Like you can get, you can use like some YouTube shorts or some quick podcasts to give you like an overview of the idea. And that's good immediate energy for the topic. Mm -hmm. But if you want something that builds like long lasting muscle in your mind on the topic, it is hard to beat a book. And it's just crazy that it's such a good deal. There's so much information. And yet like people, you don't meet that many people who read seriously. Yeah. Well, the mistake that people make, and I I do the same, and this is going to be contradictory because this is a podcast, but people want a Huberman podcast or they want something they can absorb quickly or passively when reading you can't, although my wife, you know, loves her audiobooks and it's a little bit different with fiction, but like you said, serious reading requires you to be in a solitary spot, quiet, sit down, your attention is fixed on this book and you have to read it slowly and and soak in each page. It can't just be passively absorbed in your mind or, or like in a quick hour discussion. The book might take you, you know, 20 to 80 days to read. It's not like an hour on a long road trip that you can just try and absorb a whole life lesson. So I, I think it's, I, I hope more people can return to books and it, this would be what I would literally tell myself not long ago. Um, because they are overlooked in a lot of ways as far as a resource uh, in a day and age where everybody wants immediacy or something digital. Yeah, the sacrifice is what what ultimately makes it worth it. It's like I, I've thought about this a lot recently because I'll find myself trying to part-time it even with my kids. Like I'll have one AirPod in, listening to a podcast while I'm like playing with my son. And mm. I find that those times I'm doing that I don't really hang on to either thing you know yeah and so the sacrifice of putting one to the side and focusing fully on the other 
it's like I need the entirety of my attention and my senses if it's going to last in my sense memory of my life. And Mm -hmm. to kind of pivot back to the writing, the reason writing is stuck for me, like it came in because I could tell I was decent at it in comparison to others. The reason it stuck is I probably first had this realization. It's embarrassing to even share this story. But a a girl I was dating in college, she went and traveled abroad, and we were just having a time of it. And I was in, like, the emotional throes of, like, this long-distance relationship. And Mm -hmm. was it dissolving? Was Were we falling apart? And so, like, I would sit in class, and I would... I basically wrote, like, filled up, like, one of those Moleskine notebooks, like, writing (laughs) stories of our relationship in the notebook, and eventually, like, I gave it to her. And, you know, we dated for, like, (laughs) another year. It didn't work out. But yeah, but I realized in that process, like, writing those things down, I was so much more lived in that portion of my life. And so I began enjoying exploring, like just writing about like memories or like making up alternate scenes of things. And my appreciation mm-hmm. for moments that I played out in writing was, I mean, I you can't put a, a number on it. Like, let's just say it's tenfold because that's how memory works. It's like a game. You choose to remember or you just leave it up to happenstance. And so... Mm-hmm. You know, I write a letter to my kids every year for this purpose, like kind of recapping what happened over the last year and like lessons I want them to hang on to, lessons I learned from like being their father. And I find that that's what happened with the running book and really with any of the writing. And I'm trying to get a little bit more, you know, a a little less explicative. Uh, I'm currently working on, it's like a... I think it's fair to just call it a say, straight can up. You say what the book is. Yeah, I mean, it's so early. I'm like 2,500 words in, so it's it's going <laughs> to change rapidly. But like as it stands, it's a science fiction novel, and mm-hmm. I'm playing around with some other ideas because the opening of it could turn into other things. But if I write out the novel idea, which I've outlined, then it'll just be a science fiction novel. But you know, a science fiction novel isn't about any one thing. It's a metaphor for a lot of things. But you find that your life naturally goes into the writing and choosing to remember lessons and events in the form of of parable or just explicative memory, it pays the full sacrifice of the attention. Not only did I pay attention when the event occurred, but I paid attention for a much longer time to hone off all the BS that was in the memory so that only the core element of the memory remained. And once I've written about it and I have sharpened it down to this little story, like this was the thing that mattered from this event, I carry Mm -hmm. that with me so much better than the rest of my life, which I just kind of like, you know, you grab randomly and it, it has various levels of refinement and maybe you told a good story, maybe you just told something that was really fluffy. It's whatever. But the things that I choose to focus on, because there's so much attention sacrificed, they become sacred. And to to take 
portions of your life and to make them sacred is tantamount to me as being grateful for your life. The highest level of gratitude I can pay is the things that come out of the other side of the writing. And so it is very difficult for me to find something comparable to like when I've finished spending the time this way that I mm-hmm. I almost never feel as good as I do when I'm done with the writing. There's there's in the moment things like you know, I I've, I've recently been feeling extremely fond of my daughter. She just turned 3 uh on Friday. She she says I love you and gives more hugs than anybody and I could not feel more affection for anybody, or at least I haven't. I don't think it's possible. And yet mm-hmm. I find myself constantly thinking about, I can't wait to write about this because I know that mm-hmm. like I'm having the moment now and then I can have it again and I can make it even sharper and then I'll have it forever. Mm-hmm. So that's what's made it stick for me. And the thing I tell people, and so I'll share it here because I think it it's the easiest way to appreciate this, if you've ever done any sort of therapy, and we all have, we've all talked about an issue with a friend, and you go into the issue and your mind is a storm. They say we think at about a thousand words per minute. You get done talking about it, and most of us talk around 100, 120 words per minute. And you get done and you're like, that doesn't feel so daunting anymore. Or, man, I feel much more at peace with this situation than I did before. Just the act of talking about your problems shrinks whatever sound and fury was in your brain down to something that feels manageable. And anybody who's written or tried to write thoughtfully, like forget about Mavis Beacon, I can type 120 words per minute. It's like when you're trying to write thoughtfully and you just time, okay, I've been writing for an hour, how many words do I have? 600, (laughs) right? It's like Mm -hmm. you're slow. Like even if you're humming, maybe you're 20 words per minute. So the act of writing is about the most demanding form of thinking you can have. Like every word is precise. And I was going to so, say, uh, the word that comes to mind is precision. Mm-hmm. And it just condenses your, it condenses all of the stuff that's in your head down into something that is manageable, that you can carry with you, that now seems not like it's a, an incomprehensible storm, but like it's a little nugget that you can control and use. It's almost like, uh, you know, it's almost like taking a piece of iron ore and like shaping it down into a little hammer. It's like now I know what this mm-hmm. is and it has a function instead of just being like a big useless hunk of experience. So with the next book being a novel, and this kind of goes for your other works as well, but certainly for a fiction uh, work, how do you approach and kind of outline that with your ideas specifically because sometimes, you know, how, how I attach a metaphor to it is looking up at a mountain from the beginning of the trail and you just can be overwhelmed by the height of the summit um, rather than just getting started and kind of chipping away at the different checkpoints. How do you kind of lay out your ideas uh, if you can kind of broadly answer that? Yeah, I forget the author who said it, but they said it the best, which is like, it's like making a long drive in the fog or in the dark. You can only see as far as the headlights, but you can make the whole journey that way. Like that hugely Mm -hmm. applies to the act of writing a book. 
what you'll learn after I mean the first thing is you got to finish a book. Like if if this is something you wish to do, you just need to finish one. So I wrote about a 200,000 and for comparison that's going to be you know about a 5-600 page book. I wrote that novel finished it over covid. So I guess finished it two, three years ago. But I wrote it. It was awful. <laughs> it's it's all there. I, I did three drafts of it. It is a stack of craziness. And like out of that craziness, I was like so exhausted. I was like, man, this just, I have just been running around in circles with this thing. And out of that craziness came Looks Like We're Running, which is just like a very simple story. Like, for comparison, it's about 50,000 words. It's, like, it is very obvious. Like, 20 weeks of training for a marathon, here's what it is. And there's some funny stories in there. Like, there's some good references. But I was like, I'm just going to write something clean, direct. And looks like we're running is the most proud of any long work I've ever been. I think it's awesome. But there is a complexity that I desire to accomplish with a novel with a larger story. There's there's other ideas I wish to explore. And I learned a lot from writing that first book, which to your point, like you do need to know what it's about. You don't need, you don't, everybody's going to have a different ap- approach, but to me it is not that important that you have like, here's the thing perfectly outlined, here's all my plot breaks, like here's the rise and fall mm-hmm. You just need to know what it's about. You need to know like a couple of great characters and what they're about. And you need to let the story present itself to you. And you need to get going. And I I did outline this science fiction novel in its entirety. Uh, beginning, middle of November. And then I started writing something else. And I found all the ideas I had outlined came into this something else. And now this something else is so obviously, to me, the beginning of the science fiction novel. And that's why when we started mm-hmm. talking about it earlier, I was like, ah, it could be a science fiction novel. It could be a science It's the beginning of this novel. That's where it's leading okay. me. And I realized, like, I thought I was going to tell this tight little 5,000-word parable that would lead me into a nonfiction work. And it turns out that tight little 5,000-word parable is just perfect for a character I wanted in the science fiction novel that really helps it all fall into place. And so Mm. I don't think that... And look, we'll find out, right? And in 18 months from now, like if if this thing is rolling and I've got a publication schedule and, and I'm really proud of it, then well, this methodology works. If it doesn't, then I'll probably have learned something about uh, the preparation process I did not know before. But I think because I went through it in a rambling manner in the past, the fact that I have a very clear end point that I'm going towards, and I've got currently five characters that I know for sure who they are, I think it'll work itself out just fine. And 
that's a very that level of uncertainty is very difficult for somebody to commit to when to your point that opened this podcast they're writing towards an achievement like they need this book to become something for them but i've written a 600 page work that i'm just ready to light on fire so yeah. it's it's very fine to me to let this process unfold and see what it has to teach me. Uh, and I, I do think, to put a point on it, the actual output of all the work I do, whether it's running, writing, the AA meetings, it doesn't matter, my own, my own work at Cisco, the point of all the work, the, the ultimate project, is the person I become. And so if I'm writing with purpose and I'm trying to I'm trying to be precise, the excellence of the effort is the point of the work. And if I am if I am doing that thoughtfully and intentionally, the thing that comes out on the other side is going to be a better version of myself. So I don't struggle with the uncertainty of that. I like what I do and you know, we'll see how the book turns out. But as long as I have peace of mind, then it'll be a success. And then how people react to it, that's up to them. I like that. Focusing on the effort rather than the outcome. As long as excellent effort's there, we'll see where the outcome lies. I, yeah. str I struggle with this to a degree because there's a portion of me that would love to quit my job and write full time. And mm -hmm. look, if I wrote a hit... And it turned into like a TV show that pays royalties. Like now you're rolling, right? Like this is, you've got mm -hmm. a career. But I also had the luxury of making what I think is, don't, I hope Cisco doesn't listen to this, probably too much money for what I do. And yeah. <laughs> so as long as I can balance it, uh, I don't have to put pressure on the book to be something excellent. And, you know, there's there's a battle there because I, for anybody who's read Stephen Pressfield, either The Art of War or Turning Pro, you'll, you'll recognize that that is a, a war you'll fight inside yourself with like, would I be better if I burned the boats and went all in on this thing? But the, the beauty of not burning the boats is that the art, can just exist as it needs to, and yeah, I can more just freedom. stay dedicated to it and let it evolve. Yeah. Last question about writing that I want to ask you is in one of your reels uh, that I really loved. And it's something that I've struggled with, not just with the, the concept of writer, but just uh, can carry into anything, is you said that when people ask you, what do you do, you say that you're a writer. Yeah. And that you, you say that because you identify with your passion more than your occupation in that kind of setting your question. So what are your thoughts on that kind of classic small talk question and, and how you conceptualize identity for yourself? Well, the, the first thing is the, the classic small talk question of what do you do? 99% of the time when someone asks me that, they don't care. No, <laughs> it's, know, it's, it's, it's out as soon as it's in, yeah. <laughs> and so like, I decide to answer it with something I do care about. And... You know, at, at the very least, one of us will be happy with the topic of conversation. <laughs> uh, the reason I start 
the reason I really started answering it that way was probably out of uh, an insecurity I needed to overcome. You know, it's like the I I felt embarrassed like, oh, I'm trying to write, but I'm not actually. It's like, look, yeah. this is you Own you it. need to declare your state in the world. And starting to do that created a call it a, a hypocritical gap. It's like, well, if I'm telling people I'm a writer, I better be writing. Mm-hmm. And so I started working to close the gap between who I professed to be and who I actually was. And now I'd say those things are in correct harmony. I'm I'm good at having that conversation, explaining the difference. Because, you know, usually the follow-ups will be like, oh, anything I would know? And... It's like, well, I, do you read much about running You're books like, have of you the ever, millennial generation? Have you ever read Infinite Jest? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> to own it's that. like, no, nah, probably not, but like you could. <laughs> you know, hey, I'll yeah. send you a link. Uh, <laughs> so it also like it, it opens up to a sales pitch, which is a selfish portion of it. But <laughs> I more than anything, I think that if I'm trying to be helpful to others. I think that people in our country, at least the people I grew up with, are kind of plagued by the what do you do question. It feels like a burden to like answer that question with something that sounds impressive. And so I used to like telling people that I worked at Cisco, and I still kind of do because I'm proud of, I mean, the job changed my life and the living I'm able to provide for my family and the relationships I've made there have all been fantastic. But once I started realizing that I was really answering that question to impress people more than to fulfill the person I wanted to be, I kind of started feeling seedy about the answer. And I think that a lot of people, they pick a, they pick a college major, and then they pick a job, and then they pick a spouse all because they have this idea about the perceptions that other people have for them. And I'm certainly guilty of that on on several occasions and on several levels currently. But I I want to remove those filters between who I feel like I really am inside and who I am when I'm out in the world. And I feel like the more I've been able to do that, the more satisfied I am with the interactions I have with others and with just like my day to day. And so that, that was a big part of it was just like, you know what, when people ask me, what do I do? What's behind that answer? And I think I just got asked it enough times that I was like, like, fuck it. I'm going to say the thing I want to say. <laughs> well, well, mine, you're, in a way like me where you have your hands in a lot of pots and passions, I'm that way to a fault with all the different things I feel like I do. At least I always describe it as a fault. It's, it's a double-edged sword in that way. But it's kind of like when people ask me, what do I do when we're out and about or it's my wife or, or someone in the family, I usually just say I'm a video editor because a lot of what I do is video editing for real estate agents. Because I if I were say, to say that's an interesting that I'm a, question for you. 
Yeah, because if I'm to say I'm a content creator, especially if they're above 40, they're like, all right, what is it? What is that? And if they're below that, then they kind of wonder, oh, what content are you doing? You know, and then um, if I answer and say switchback, you know, yeah. then I'm like, I have to explain that whole business and how that works and electrolytes and this and that. Uh, or prior to that, you know, I owned a gym, so I'd say gym owner, and that has a little bit more kind of coolness or prestige to it. Um, you know, but it, do a lot of things. Um, and so it's, it's kind of hard to depend the tail on the donkey, so to speak, as far as identity. But I also think that that, that makes it beautiful, right? Because you're more than, I mean, look at all the things I got to list about you, you know, author, addict, recovery, survivor, you're more than just a, a Cisco employee. Um, and I, I'm more than just a, you know, a mediocre podcaster. So, you know, we're all a lot of things. And I, I like that, that point, though, about owning it as, as something that you do. And then also letting that ownership apply pressure to yourself to live up to the own or the, uh, the things that you profess yourself to be as well. You know, that's interesting. Uh, there was a group I was in. So a group therapy it wasn't exactly AA because people were there for all sorts of issues, but, uh, the clinician who led it about once a month, they would open it up where, just to get people talking, like let's get some dialogue going. The, a little bean bag would be thrown across the group, and you would throw it to somebody, and they would in ha- in one word have to describe themselves. And mm-hmm. you could not do it with a relationship or with a physical sensation. So the reason you had to take those away is because everybody would just say oh, well, I'm a mother, or, oh, I'm tired. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's like, okay, we got to remove those out of the equation. And it was crazy how difficult it was for people. Incredibly hard to say, like, this is the word that I most associate with. And that was probably what, as much as anything, kick-started it. It was like, well, what do I want to be here? Like, salesman? Mm-hmm. Salesman? It's like, that doesn't seem yeah. quite right. Like I, I thought about that lately as far as yeah, it can be a great, I think people use it as a writing prompt, but like, what do you want on your tombstone? Mm. And it's like, I don't want video editor or content <laughs> creator on there. Right. You know, I want something with a lot more profundity to it, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, I joke about the tombstone thing all the time. Like I'll find moments like all throughout the day where like something will happen. I'm like, put that on my tombstone because yeah. it's part of the ridiculousness of life. But that's you true. know, you don't have to have a single word. I, I just, I would just like to encourage people that, like, to your point, what you do, the way you make money, is oftentimes the least interesting thing about you. And mm-hmm. so it's funny. I, I will, I've tried to find other ways. Like if I, if I find myself in small talk with somebody on an airplane, for example. It's like, how do I ask this person about themselves without asking them what they do? And yeah, well, that's what this podcast is for me. I have to like fight behind the superficial things that people do. Not superficial, that kind of connotes something negative, but more like the outfacing things that someone does. How Mm -hmm. do I get to, you know, the inner Dustin? How do I get to the essence and the passion of Dustin rather than just talking on the surface level about, you know, the things you sell or or the things you talk about maybe directly? 
Well, I do think that I'll say this about like you and Jeremy both, and I guess just towards, you know, I I think of you guys together because of Switchback, but and probably because I started following, I followed you off of seeing Jeremy's content. Yeah. But I think about you guys similarly because, you know, I'm 38. I've been telling people I'm almost 40 for like three years. When I turn 39, <laughs> I'll just be telling people I am 40. It's like I can't wait to tell yeah. people how old I feel. But I I feel like both you guys have discovered something at a younger age about, you know, trying to embrace who you want to be and trying to make that work instead of living for the ideas of others. And Mm -hmm. that comes with a lot of hard work and a lot of difficulty, but you know, it's, I shoot, I think about this with, with my kids, not to compare you guys to my kids at all. That's not what I'm saying. But (laughs) I find so often that I look up to the absolute earnestness of the way my kids approach their life. There's no guile. There's no concern about what other people are thinking about them. And, you know, to see the type of work that you guys are doing with Switchback, but in all your endeavors, it's much more about making something of yourself rather than making yourself into something that other people will accept. And Mm. to me, I admire the hell out of that. And so part of the reason I like following you guys is it reminds me of the portions of my life where, like, that is the effort I'm after. And, you know, it's it's easy to point at the corporate job and be like, well, this is, you know, this is where I trade myself for money. And it feels mm-hmm. like, you know, if I could if I could make all my life one thing what would and make the same amount of money, what would I drop? Well, yeah, it would be that. But... I also find that that has given me an opportunity for for connection and authenticity to a crowd of people that is thirsting for it. And mm-hmm. so I like the opportunities to be myself in a place where there's a lot of airs. So mm. I don't know. All that to say that when if you're out there and you're feeling crushed by you know making something of yourself in the occupation that maybe you can just take a step back, give yourself a little grace, and and know that like whatever you pick, it's gonna be all right. You know, just try yeah. to do it excellently, and you'll find yourself in it. Yeah, you know, well, I think we've covered every base that comes to mind uh, in this talk, so it's been it's been wonderful to have you, and I know we'll stay in touch after this, and I I definitely got to stay in touch with you just on book recommendations. But for those that are interested, where can they find you? Where can they find your books? Uh, the best uh, the best spot for the books is still Amazon. Um, if you're a Spotify listener, you can listen to the audio version for free on Spotify. Looks like we're running. Um, and really, the only social media I am active on is Instagram. It's at Dustin Redazel. Same as the name you'll see in the, the episode title here, all one word. But uh, yeah, if anybody is curious about anything, like I... It it is still very simple for me to get back to everybody on DMs within 24 hours. 
So yeah, if there's any direct well questions, yeah, feel free to message <laughs> We're me. We're not famous like Jeremy. No, it's super simple. It's like, it's funny. I had this, uh, I have one reel that Jeremy put out that just like, I mean, for me, it's over oh, like, I saw, yeah, it it's over 800,000 yeah, yeah. views. Like I've never had that sort of online experience before. And so all of a sudden, like I'm having like messages with strangers. I'm like, mm. it's like, is this weird? Is it not weird? Just cause it's all new. <laughs> it's like, ah, oh, what yeah. the heck? Like it's, it's awesome. It's really cool to see people respond to the content. And I've, it's kind of cool to make some new friends, even if it's like somebody in Australia who's reading my book and telling me what parts they like. It's, it's all been really great. So yeah, it's at Dustin Redazel and, you know, happy to see anybody who is on a similar journey. Yeah. Well, if you guys enjoyed the podcast, please give it a share. Uh, subscribe for more stuff like this. Follow Dustin and uh, obviously grab his copy of his books and I'll catch you guys in the next one.